Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. Back in the summer of 1999, the Wall Street Journal ran an editorial titled The Federalism Revolution, and it commented on the ways that the Supreme Court under Chief Justice William Rehnquist had started slowly chipping away at national regulatory power by imposing federalism-based limits on what the national government can do. Just a couple of years later, in 2001, the law professor Erwin Chemerinsky wrote an article where he predicted that, quote, When constitutional historians look back at the Rehnquist Court, they'll say that the greatest changes in constitutional law were with regard to federalism. I think a lot of that is true, and much of those changes came in the 1990s. In that decade, the Supreme Court put limits on what Congress can do under the Commerce Clause, really the first time they had done that since the 1930s, and that's a subject we'll tackle later this semester. But the Rehnquist Court also limited what Congress can do under a certain interpretation of the Constitution's Tenth Amendment. That amendment says, quote, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. And in that same article, Chemerinsky highlighted two broad approaches that we've seen in American history to interpreting the Tenth Amendment and what it means for federalism under the Constitution. The first broad approach is a kind of constitutional nationalism. This arguably is the approach that you get in cases like McCulloch versus Maryland in 1819. John Marshall says in that case that, of course, the national government is a government of enumerated powers. The Constitution sketches out the great powers of government, taxing, conducting war, regulating the economy, and then leaves to Congress to determine the best way to achieve those great objects of national power. And the choice of means to those constitutionally enumerated ends are the implications of the enumerated powers, their implied powers. The national government under Marshall's vision is strong, and it has lots of implied powers. It's not limited simply to those explicitly enumerated powers. And in this case, the implied power to charter and operate a national bank was there, despite there being no enumerated power to do so. And if you combine Congress's implied power to charter a bank with the Constitution's supremacy clause, Marshall argued, then one could deduce that a state may not take actions that will thwart the exercise of national power. And in this case, the state couldn't impose a tax on that national bank operating within its borders. Looking at it through that lens, the Tenth Amendment would be an accurate description of the Constitution's structure, but it would be that, merely descriptive. It wouldn't provide any additional limit on national power that didn't already exist. If a power is delegated to the national government, either expressly or by implication, then it's not one of those powers reserved to the states, and it doesn't do any good to appeal to the Tenth Amendment as a check on national power. If the national government has the power to act, then the state's powerless to stand in the way. You might define the powers of the national government broadly or narrowly, but they are what they are. And if the national government has the power to act, then there's no use saying anything about federalism. That just does tell us already what the division of power is between the states and the nation. Under this approach, states are protected from national overreach by the national political process and from the equal representation of states in the U.S. Senate, but they're not protected from any federalism-based limits on national power that would be enforceable by the courts by appealing to the Tenth Amendment. The second approach that Chemerinsky highlights 
is one that we might call a federalist approach, one that sees the Tenth Amendment as imposing its own substantive limits on national government power in order to safeguard the autonomy and sovereignty of state governments. You see some of the Commerce Clause cases of the early 20th century doing something like this, but it really isn't until the 1990s that the Supreme Court imposes substantive limits on the reach of congressional power based on the constitutional principles of federalism, of a clear delineation between state authority and national authority, and the Constitution's design to protect and preserve some of the powers of the states as reflected in the Tenth Amendment. One of the reasons this comes so late in the game is that there's been a steady growth of national government power in the 20th century. It accelerates after the New Deal in the 1930s and then runs into resistance at the Supreme Court really only in the 1990s. Under some of those New Deal era precedents about the Commerce Clause, which gives Congress the power to regulate commerce among the several states, Congress could regulate not only interstate commerce, but things that had an effect on interstate commerce. And this is how Congress routinely regulates everything from civil rights to environmental protection. And there was some pushback on the court's Commerce Clause precedents in the Rehnquist era, really the first time that you saw that in 60 years. But Congress also increasingly enacted regulatory schemes by providing federal funds to the states with certain conditions attached. So not an exercise of its Commerce Clause power, but an exercise of its spending power. If you take these education funds, then you have to adopt these standards. If you accept these law enforcement funds, then you have to conduct this training. If you accept these highway funds, then your minimum drinking age must be 21, and so on. What people called the Federalism Revolution was the Supreme Court's imposition of limits on the open-ended nature of Congress's power to regulate commerce and its imposition of limits on Congress's ability to enlist the states in national regulatory schemes. Two examples of the latter phenomena are New York versus United States in 1992 and Prince versus United States in 1997. Together, the cases stand for a renewed emphasis on Tenth Amendment limitations on national government power. Let's take a look at each, starting with New York versus United States. Back in 1985, Congress, at the urging of several states, had passed the Low Level Radioactive Waste Policy Amendments Act. It involved a somewhat complex regulatory scheme designed to deal with the scarcity of low-level radioactive waste sites in some states. The act was designed to create an incentive structure for each state to be responsible for its own radioactive waste after a certain period of time. And it tried to do this through three main provisions. The first was a monetary incentive. States could impose a surcharge on waste from other states, and so it provided an incentive for states to deal with their own waste. The second was an access incentive. States could increase the cost of -of out-of-state access to their own disposal sites and eventually just deny access altogether. And the third was a liability incentive. According to the Act, states must take title to and become liable for any waste within their borders not disposed of by a specific date. And it's this third provision that raised eyebrows. Can Congress do that? Just tell a state that it has to take title to and become liable for the waste within its own borders. And if not, why not? The state of New York didn't think Congress could do that. And here's what Peter Schiff, the Deputy Solicitor General of New York, argued in front of the Supreme Court. We recognize that Congress certainly has the power under the Commerce Clause to deal with the subject of the disposal of low-level radioactive waste. But it is our position that the means that it has chosen here is constitutionally defective. This act is directed solely at the states and makes the states responsible for the disposal of low-level radioactive waste uh, that is generated within the state. Uh, It makes the states responsible for the 
disposition of the uh, waste of private generators, federal generators, as well as any that is generated by the state itself. This is a totally mandatory provision which requires the states to stay, to, to enter and to stay in the field of low-level disposal of low-level radioactive waste. The mandate is made particularly effective by the so-called take title provision, uh, which specifies that if the state has not otherwise provided for the disposal of low-level radioactive waste by January 1, 1996, that uh, the state must take title of any such waste, and uh, if it doesn't accept uh, possession, that it becomes liable for any uh, to the other generators uh, if there are any damages, direct or indirect. Um, in other words, one way or the other, the states are simply ordered by Congress to enter this activity. The statute is truly unique in the uh, annals of American jurisprudence. We know of no other situation where the states have simply been mandated to take part in a particular activity. As Schiff says, one way or the other, the states are simply ordered by Congress to enter this activity. And it's that, the ordering of the states to take a certain action or assume liability for something, that Schiff thinks is unconstitutional. Five members of the Supreme Court agreed. And in an opinion written by Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, the court announced that the take title provision of the waste policy amendments was unconstitutional because it ordered the states to act instead of simply providing incentives for the states to cooperate with the federal regulatory scheme, something that O'Connor saw as inconsistent with the Tenth Amendment. This is how she explained it in her opinion announcement. While the Constitution empowers Congress to hold out incentives to the states, in order to urge the states to regulate in in accordance with federal interests. The Constitution does not authorize Congress to mandate directly that state governments regulate in a particular way. Applying this principle to the three challenged provisions of the Act, we hold that the first two are permissible methods of encouragement, but the third, the requirement that the states take title to the waste, is a direct mandate to the states that exceeds the authority of Congress. The take title provision is therefore inconsistent with the Tenth Amendment's reservation to the states of those powers not delegated by the Constitution to Congress. So if there's a bright line here, it involves the national government through congressional legislation forcing or ordering states to act. This goes beyond the powers of Congress, O'Connor says. And of course, one might reply, no, it doesn't. Congress has the power to regulate commerce. No one here is disputing that Congress can regulate radioactive waste under its power to regulate commerce. And Congress chooses as the means to exercise this power in order that the states become liable for the waste within their borders. But O'Connor and the court say, not so fast. The Tenth Amendment reflects the reality that the Constitution didn't collapse the states into one national government or make the states the subsidiaries of the national government. The people have given some power to the national government, and the rest they've reserved to their own states. But their state powers, the ones not delegated to the national government, don't depend for their existence on the national government. In their own sphere of authority, in those powers that the people have not delegated to the national government, the states remain sovereign. And simply ordering the states to act is a violation of that sovereignty, and the violation of the Tenth Amendment, according to O'Connor. This the court calls the anti-commandeering principle. 
the national government cannot simply commandeer the governments of the states and compel them to take part in a national regulatory scheme. In his dissenting opinion, Justice Byron White wrote, For me, the court's civics lesson has a decidedly hollow ring at a time when action rather than rhetoric is needed to solve a national problem. According to White, the states did act through the people they sent to represent them in Congress. State governors urged Congress to pass legislation to address the problem, and they were involved in the drafting of the bill. But the court here, according to White, has needlessly complicated that task and made national legislation to address this national challenge more difficult. And when White was writing his opinion, there was another national problem that Congress was trying to address with national legislation, and that was violent crime committed with handguns. In 1993, Congress passed the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act requiring the U.S. Attorney General to create a nationwide system of background checks for handgun purchases. But until that system got up and running, the chief local law enforcement officer in a given area was required by the act to conduct those background checks. Several state officers sued, including Jay Prince, a sheriff in Montana, and they claimed that Congress couldn't just force them to conduct background checks for the national government. Essentially, they said, if you want a background check, do it yourself. And the principle of the case is pretty similar to the anti-commandeering principle from New York. If the national government can't commandeer the states, can it order around the state's law enforcement officers and enlist them in a federal regulatory scheme? And again, as you've probably guessed, five members of the Supreme Court said no. Writing for the court, Justice Scalia put great emphasis on constitutional practice in the early republic before finally concluding that the same principle at work in New York versus United States was at work here as well. This is how Justice Scalia put it. First of all, the historical understanding and practice. Our review of that reveals not a single example in the first century of our nation's history of a federal law that required a state's executive officers to implement a federal regulatory program. Congress not only failed to enact a single such provision, it seems to go, have, have gone out of its way to avoid them. One of the interesting uh, enactments was passed on the day before Congress uh, proposed the uh, Bill of Rights to the states, and it involved uh, an interim provision similar to the interim provision here. Um, on September 23, 1789, the first Congress enacted a law aimed at obtaining state assistance of the most rudimentary and necessary sort for the enforcement of the new government's laws, namely the holding of federal prisoners in state jails at federal expense, since there were, of course, no federal jails. Significantly, that law did not issue a command to the state's executive but rather a recommendation to the state's legislatures. Congress recommended, this is reading from the statute, recommended to the legislatures of the several states to pass laws making it expressly the duty of the keepers of their jails to receive and and safe keep therein all prisoners committed under the authority of the United States. Moreover, when Georgia refused to comply with that request, the response of Congress was a law authorizing the marshal, the federal marshal, in any state that failed to comply with the recommendation to rent a temporary jail. The acts of the first Congresses uh, indicate, in our view, that they believed they could, uh, unquestionably indicate that they believed they could require state courts to perform functions appropriate, appropriate to the judicial power. But courts are different. The Supremacy Clause states that state judges will be bound by federal law. 
and federal power to make use of state courts is implicit in the fact that the Constitution merely permits but does not require the establishment of federal courts inferior to this court. Moreover, judges have traditionally applied the laws of other jurisdictions. We also examine various passages of the Federalist Papers, which state that the national government will be able to, quote, employ and, quote, make use of state officers, and that state officers will be, quote, rendered auxiliary to the enforcement of federal law. We conclude that the only sensible interpretation of these statements is that the national government may use and employ state officers with the state's consent, and that state officers are auxiliary to the national government in the sense that they must enact, enforce, and interpret state law in a manner consistent with federal law. Turning to the structure of the Constitution, we find there is a controlling principle. Reflected throughout the document is the postulate that the states retain a residuary and inviolable sovereignty. The Constitution created a novel system of dual sovereignty under which the national government does not issue commands to the states but rather shares with the states the authority to command individuals. This division of of sovereignty into two distinct spheres is one of the Constitution's structural provisions protecting liberty. And a healthy balance of power between the state and federal governments reduces the risk of tyranny from either front. This balance would be upset and the federal government's power augmented immeasurably if the federal government were able to impress into service, at no cost to itself, the police officers of the 50 states. We find that separation of powers concerns are also implicated here. The framers insisted on a strong unitary federal executive to ensure both vigor and accountability. That unity would be shattered and the power of the president subject to reduction if Congress could require state officers to implement its laws without even obtaining the consent of the states. Neither the supremacy clause nor the necessary and proper clause alters our analysis. A law which invades the residuary sovereignty of the states is not a, quote, proper means within the meaning of necessary and proper of carrying into effect Congress's enumerated powers. Such a law is also not made, quote, in pursuance of the Constitution, close quote, which is the only sort of law the Supremacy Clause makes the law of the land. And finally, we turn to the Court's prior jurisprudence, which we find to be conclusive on this subject. In New York versus United States, we held that the federal government could not require the states to enact or administer federal regulatory programs. That holding was all but dictated by several opinions that preceded it, and we find it controlling here. We find unpersuasive the government's attempt to distinguish New York on the ground that the law challenged in New York required states to make policy, while the Brady Act does not. Actually, reducing the states to, quote, puppets of a ventriloquist Congress, as a Court of Appeals in an earlier case described it, is worse, not better, than requiring them to make policy. We also find irrelevant the fact that the Brady Act is aimed at specified state officers rather than at the state itself. The Brady Act is, to be sure, directed at individuals, but it is addressed to them in their official capacities and requires them to perform the specified duties not as private individuals, but as the agents of the state. 
We held in New York that the Constitution categorically prohibited such laws, and we reaffirm that ruling today. The federal government may not compel the states to enact or administer a federal regulatory program. It follows from the above that the central obligation imposed on state law enforcement officers by the Brady Act, to wit the obligation to perform background checks on prospective handgun purchasers, is unconstitutional. Where does that leave us with respect to federalism today? Well, it leaves us with an important principle, the anti-commandeering principle, and a substantive interpretation of state sovereignty, of what Scalia calls dual sovereignty, under the Tenth Amendment. And it leaves us with a revolution in the federalism jurisprudence of the Supreme Court. And that revolution has implications for big issues in American politics today, including Medicaid expansion and immigration, two issues that we'll take up next week. Thank you.